Go ahead and open to Psalm 25, as advertised. Psalm 25. The psalm is uh, of reasonable length, uh, shorter than Psalm 119 for sure. Uh, There's probably no better way to begin preaching on a psalm than by reading it in full. So let's begin by doing that. Psalm 25 and verse 1. Psalm 25 and verse 1. To you, O Lord... I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. They have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt For it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge, refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all of his troubles. Do you know anyone, or perhaps you are this person, who, when they're stretched out, starts cleaning the house? Uh, you start organizing the closet, organizing the garage, wherever is your, uh, your happy place to make it all better. Um, when, when life is chaotic, sometimes what we do is we throw ourselves into some small organizing task or some small cleaning task. I, I'm, not, I'm not just talking nonsense up here. You understand what I'm... Maybe you do that. Why do we do that? Why do people do that? You know, it's not like having a clean closet is going to fix everything in your life that's messed up. But that reaction seems to be kind of an attempt to organize in the small way we can to organize the unorganizable chaos of life. So we're confused, we're bereaved, we're anxious about the world or our own lives, and there's so much that we can't control. And so if we're going to have some semblance of order and sanity in our life, A clean closet is going to have to do for now. It's how we begin to, I think, make sense of a senseless situation. And I'm going to argue that this psalm is really the psalmist's attempt of doing something like that, of cleaning his closet when his life seems to be coming unhinged. So this is one of nine psalms which employ an acrostic structure. 
Um, An acrostic psalm is when each verse of the psalm begins with the next successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet all the way through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 begins with the equivalent of A, verse 2 begins with B, and so on, all the way through the end of the psalm. Now, a question that everyone who ventures to write a commentary on the psalms has to answer is, why do the psalmists sometimes do this, do this acrostic thing? Um, There are several ideas, each of which may may be true. It may have been intended in part as a mnemonic device, what help way of memorization. Uh, it may be a way of implying completeness, a way of saying that the subject of the psalm has been covered from A to Z or from, from Aleph to Tav, the Hebrew first and last letters. But there's another suggestion about why they do this sometimes that I came across when studying Lamentations, if you recall, some, some time back. Book of Lamentations is a collection of five poems, each of them using a version of the acrostic structure. And, and, and what happens in Lamentations is you have these highly emotional laments over the death and destruction of Jerusalem, and the author is desperately trying to make sense of it all, and he himself is grieved as much as anyone else. And yet at the same time, those discombobulated, grief-filled laments are written in this highly structured format where verse 1 has to begin with A, and verse 2 has to begin with B, and verse 3 has to begin with C, all the way through the alphabet. And so you have these expressions of confusion, grief, and anxiety, and yet at the same time, these expressions are presented in a rigidly structured and orderly way. Do you see it's an attempt to bring order and sanity to the world when the world's totally upside down? It's a version of organizing your closet when you're stressed. The world's a mess, but at least I can make a poem about that world, and that poem can be in order. And I can do that. I can begin to make sense of a senseless situation. The acrostic of Psalm 25 is along these lines. So it's clear that the psalmist's world is chaotic here. And the chaos is coming from all different directions. In the beginning, we hear about enemies who are baiting traps for the psalmist. And then midway through, and then again at the end, we have a guilty conscience the psalmist begins talking about. A burden of guilt he's carrying around about his sins. He can't forget about them. There's also a problem of what the right course of action is in all this difficulty. What am I to do? Instruct me, Lord. And so it seems to me as a way of kind of bringing order to the chaos, what he does is something like alphabetize it. He puts it in order. There is both order and chaos in this psalm. The order is represented by the alphabetization, by the acrostic, and yet every commentator I read said it's nearly impossible to outline this this psalm thematically where, you know, verses 1 through 5 is about this and verses 5 through 10 is about this. It just doesn't exist because he's jumping back and forth. In one verse he's praising God, and the next he's worrying about a situation, and the next he's worried about his guilt, and the next he's talking about God's forgiveness, and then it's back to his enemies, and it's really kind of a mess. And so rather than try to impose an artificial outline that's not really there, what I think I can do to make sense of it is to make two lists as we read through the psalm, and we see some recurring ideas And we'll just take note of those as we go. Here are the two lists we're going to make. The first list is what's wrong in the psalmist's world. And the second list is what's right about his response. What's wrong about this chaotic world he's living in and what's right about his response to that chaotic world. So what we're going to do is just talk through it and and we'll make our list as we go. This is verses 1 through 3. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. 
Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. You might recognize the opening of the psalm from a song we sometimes sing, Unto Thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. And verses 1, 2, and 3 are, are there. It's in our supplement, number 104. But, but, but the psalm opens with a confident assertion of trust in God. Um, he lifts up his soul to the true God. In contrast to the man of Psalm 24 and verse 4, who lifts up his soul to what is false, he lifts up his soul to the proper object of worship. But we quickly see these aren't just pious platitudes about how you should trust God. This is part of his response to the first thing we see that's wrong in his world, which is the pressure of enemies. There are people in this opening trying to humiliate him. So when he says in verse 3, "Let not, that none who wait for God shall be put to shame, well, that's because there are people around him trying to put him to shame. There are people who are, he says, wantonly treacherous. That is, they are deliberately and unprovoked in their evil toward him. The enemies really are the mirror image of the psalmist in this psalm. The, the enemies are busy taking matters into their own hands to get what they want at the expense of someone else. That's the idea of the wanton. We do what we want. No one tells us what to, what to do. But the psalmist is busy not taking matters into his own hands, but in verse 3, waiting. He's busy waiting. Not trying to get what he wants, but busy lifting his soul up to God in verse 1. Which leads us to the first right response of the psalm, which is waiting on God, which turns out to be a recurring theme. Waiting on and trusting in God. He takes a stance in the psalm of patience and a stance of hope. This is not blind self-confidence. He's not saying, I'm strong enough to withstand these enemies. He doesn't think that. It's not self-confidence, it's God-confidence. Verse 2, in you I trust. And neither is it blind and naive trust. He's not just saying, God, I'll keep my fingers crossed and and hope it'll work out. It's really a logical response to objective truths about God that have been demonstrated in the past. He says this in verse 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. He's reflecting on other people who have waited on God as he's trying to, and he says, there is vindication here. He's not just blindly hoping God will come through. He's thinking about how God comes through for his people in the past. That's been the story of Abraham. That was the story of Israel and Egypt. That was the story of David himself. For God's people, the solution, and whatever enemy is threatening them, the solution is always wait on God to deliver, and in the meantime, while we wait, keep worshiping, keep praying, keep obeying. We come to verse 4. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. We see the waiting idea again. And so we have here in verse 4 a prayer for guidance and instruction. Perhaps we could read behind this and and add to the psalmist's problems, which you might call a lack of guidance. Um, That he prays this because he doesn't quite know what to do in this situation. He doesn't know what what to do about these enemies. And so he says in verse 4, I want to know the ways of God so that, verse 5, I can walk in those ways. Show me what I should do so I can do that. Show me the path, verse 4, so I can walk the path, verse 5. Give me the know-how for handling my enemies, verse 4, and then give me the get up and go to do what you said in verse 5. And I think there's a point to be made here about his waiting on God about what it means to do that, to wait on God. 
He's not just passively waiting on God to do something. He is waiting, in verse 4, for God to teach him also what he should be doing so that he can go and do it. His idea of waiting involves things like continual prayer and continual pursuit of God's ways and God's will and then a desire to do what God says as soon as that becomes obvious to him. So, so what he does really avoids the two opposite errors we can make when we handle our chaotic worlds. One way, one way of mishandling chaos is being just as wanton as the enemies are in verse 3. We take matters into our own hands. We adopt the world's playbook. We leave God behind as we run on ahead. We're going to take care of the situation. We know how to handle this. And God, you just stay back here. I'll get to you on Sunday while I take care of business my way. You know, like Asa, we seek the doctors before we seek God. Or we run out to seek vengeance on our own instead of seeking God who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We charge ahead with our own plans without thought to God's will. That's not what the psalmist is doing. He is waiting on God. God's going to take care of this. But he also avoids the other extreme. One way is run out ahead of God. The other is wait way behind God. The other is thinking, you know, wait on the Lord is really an excuse to do nothing. We have a problem. We have an illness We have a disagreement with a brother. We have a prodigal child. We have a marriage on the rocks. And so we pray a prayer, God help this, and we say basically, God, the ball's in your court now. I'll wait here. Go take care of it. Thinking that's the sum total of our responsibility. That's not what it means to wait on the Lord. That's not what the psalmist is doing in verses 4 and 5. The psalmist's idea of waiting involves a constant desire to know God's ways so that we can walk in those ways, verses 4 and 5. Waiting on the Lord involves asking God's intervention in a difficult situation and also seeking guidance about what God would have me do in that difficult situation. Do you see what it means to wait on the Lord in this psalm? Well, we come to verse 6, and a new problem rears its head. I'll go ahead and put it up here in the chaos of this situation. So far, all the difficulty seems to be external, different people putting pressure on him. But suddenly, the problem's... The problems are well within his own heart. The burden of guilt he's dealing with. Verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, in your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. It seems perhaps that the desire to be strengthened to walk in God's ways in verses 4 and 5 Perhaps that reminds the psalmist, I haven't always done that. I'm seeking to know God's ways so that I can do them, but I'm nagged by the fact that I've known God's ways and not done them in the past. So he he has three remembers in these verses, three remembers here. Verse 6, remember your mercy. First half of verse 7, don't remember my youthful sins. Second half of verse 7, but do remember me. Remember your mercy. Don't remember my sin, but do remember me. And I think that that sequence is actually significant. So in verse 6, he establishes first God's character, God's history of acting in mercy. Remember your mercy and your steadfast love. They have been from of old. God has said he is a God like this. He has demonstrated that he is a God like this. He forgave Abraham's lapses of faith and even pronounced Abraham faithful. He bore with Israel through their grumbling and doubting. He forgave David. And so the psalmist begins by calling on God to remember that aspect of his character so that, verse 7, 
he will remember that characteristic in his case. He says, may your remembrance of your mercy override your remembrance of my sin. But, he continues in verse 7, when I ask you not to remember my sins, I don't want you to forget about me. The sins of my youth are real. My sins are mine. But my sins are not what define me. God, I'm actively repenting and leaving that way of life. I'm seeking your face. And so, God, please don't just see me as the worst sins I've committed. Remember your mercy. Do not remember my sin. See me as I am today, your child striving to serve you. And so here I think we arrive at something else that is very right about his response to his chaotic world. In response to this burden of guilt, what we have is humble self-examination and confession. He is obviously conscious of his sins, burdened by the guilt of them. He remembers the sins of his youth. But he brings that burden of guilt before God. He remembers the kind of God he is, and he calls on God to act in his character. Which brings us to verse 8. He continues in verse 8 to to meditate on God's character. Your God of mercy, he just said, he continues in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. He's confident God will answer his prayer because all he has prayed so far is that God will be what he has already demonstrated himself to be. God, act the way you said you are. That's what his prayer has been. So the psalmist is a sinner seeking guidance, but he seeks guidance in verse 8 from a God who offers guidance to sinners all the time. That's really what God's doing all throughout the Bible, offering guidance to sinners. The psalmist is humbly sought to be taught by God, and verse 9 says, God always teaches the humble who are seeking him. He's just asking God to do what God has always done. And then verse 10, he says, God is nothing if not faithful to his own character, his own promises, and his own people. And so what the psalmist is doing is reassuring himself here, really by preaching to himself about what he knows about God. Which brings me to something else I think he gets right, which is combining personal devotion and objective doctrine. I'll explain what what I mean, and we'll get, get onto this a little bit more later. So the psalmist's worries over his own spiritual condition are answered here by true statements of God as revealed in the Bible. And so I've got my own personal self-examination. I'm scrutinizing my own heart. I'm seeing all these problems. What am I to do? Do I just beat myself up all day, every day about this? It's not what he does. He goes back to the Bible in verses 8, 9, and 10. He goes back to the God revealed there. When we've done that humble self-examination and it turns up problems, and if we're doing it right, it always will. When we're plagued with guilt over our sinful past, what do, I, what do we do? We preach the Bible to ourselves. We look at the objective truth about the kind of God we serve. I'm a sinner, but God's got time for sinners. He wants to guide them in the way, verse 8. I'm consumed with guilt, but he's a God of mercy and a God of steadfast love. You've got to preach to yourself. Well, We come to verse 11, where we have another turn. So he's preaching to himself in verses 8, 9, and 10. And perhaps what he remembers when he's preaching to himself is that covenants have two parties. Yes, a steadfast and merciful God on one side, 
But on the other side, he's just said in verse 10, should be those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. That should be God's covenant partner. Which only seems to remind him once more that a person who keeps God's covenant and God's testimonies is not the kind of person he's always been. We're right back to the burden of guilt in verse 11. Here. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And then he says, verse 12, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, talking about the God-fearer, and his offering, his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Again, do you see the discombobulation of the psalm? It looks like we've really reached a resolution in verse 10, and we're resting on God's promises. But in verse 11, we're right back to the burden of guilt. Pardon my guilt, for it is great. And yet in verse 12, we're right back to answering our guilt with doctrine. I can't erase my sins, but I also know God's covenant involves sinners. God promised to forgive and bless Israel if they feared Him. Well, He adds to Himself, I can do that. I can begin to fear the Lord. What you have in verses 12 through 14 essentially is a mini-sermon on the fear of God. About what it means to fear God and what it looks like. Uh, what, what God does toward those who fear Him. So the first question in verse 12 is, how do you know a God-fearer? And the answer the second half of verse 12 gives is, when someone takes God's word more seriously than his own, when someone can be instructed by God, when someone treats God's word as if God really said it, when someone comes to the crazy conclusion that the creator of the world knows better about the world than any creature in the world, that's the fear of God, to take more seriously what he says than what you think. Verse 13 says, The God-fearer, the covenant keeper, will inherit the blessings of the covenant. There are personal blessings. His own soul will, will abide in well-being, as well as generational blessings. His offspring shall inherit the land. But verse 14 says, The profoundest privilege of the God-fearer is the ability to be called God's friend. The fear of God is not a way to manipulate the blessings of verse 13 out of him. It's ultimately about coming into greater fellowship with the Lord of all. That's the greatest privilege of fearing God. And so the psalmist's answer to being reminded of his guilt in verse 11 again, his response is to confess it and to seek forgiveness for it and then remind himself of the objective truth. God doesn't just enter into covenants with sinless people. If that's the stipulation for entering the covenant, then there's no covenant for anyone. God enters a covenant with people who have made their way back to him in his fear, in the fear of God. He promises blessing and fellowship to the God-fearer. I can't erase my own sin, but I can confess it before God, the God I fear. Is there anyone out there who is burdened by guilt over past sins? If so, do you see how we're being invited to move forward? Be conscious of them. Be aware of them, yes. But bring them before the God, the God of the Bible, the God who's revealed to us, the God who has invited those who fear Him to come and enjoy His blessings. Well, we come to verse 15. And there's another series of turns in these verses. In verses 15 and then again in verse 21, bookending this section are pledges to wait on the Lord again. And in between, we have more desperate pleas for help while He's busy waiting. And so he sort of stakes out, here's what I'll do on either side. And then in between he says, 
I'm desperate here. Give me all the help uh, that I need. Verse 15. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on you. What we have in verse 15 is, is, a, is a word picture of waiting on the Lord. It's a waiting with our eyes fixed on the Lord, a waiting that has confidence He will deliver him from any trap that has been set. Don't you agree verse 15 would be a great ending to the psalm? But, but with that transparency that, that he's had throughout this psalm, it seems to compel him once more to say, you know what, I still have all these worries and I can't leave having all this unsaid. And so in verse 16 he adds, I'm going to wait on you, but let me, let, let me tell you, God, I feel very alone as I wait. And God, if you're not there for me, no one will be there for me. For me. I need your help. I need you to turn toward me, God. In verses 17 and 18, he says, God, and I want you to know, I'm still struggling with this guilt that I keep confessing over and over again. I can't help but remember how I don't deserve your mercy or your help. I can't help but wonder if you'll deem me worthy of delivering. And then verse 19, God, just so you know, there are those enemies still out there. Do you understand just how many there are against me? Just how malicious and violent their intentions are? This is not a joke, he adds. Then in verses 20 and verse 21, we return to the pledge the psalm opened with. Verse 3, none who wait for you will be put to shame. That was the opening, opening of the psalm. None who wait for you will be put to shame. Well, you have in verse 20, salvation from shame. And you have in verse 21, salvation from shame through means of waiting. And here again is a lesson on what it means to wait on God. To accept God's time, to listen to God's wisdom, but not to wait passively. We have to work while we wait. Verse 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me. In other words, while the psalmist waits, he'll be busy praying and he'll be busy obeying. Which brings us to the last verse of the psalm, verse 22. Um, The acrostic actually ends in verse 21. That's the final in the acrostic. Verse 22 breaks the format and acts as sort of a postscript. So this is what verse 22 says. Redeem Israel, O God out of all his troubles. So the entire psalm up to verse 21, you'll notice, is deeply personal. The psalmist is praying about his own enemies, his own guilt, his own situation. He's praying to be redeemed from all his troubles. But you'll notice suddenly when the acrostic breaks, suddenly in the final verse, he, he basically asks not just for himself, but for all of Israel. And this is fitting with many of the psalms. Many of the psalms began life as a psalmist's own personal prayer, but then later were added to Israel's songbook for use in worship by all of God's people. And the reason is because the experiences the psalmists are writing about are universal, and so are the things that are revealed to us about God. And so they're fit for use for anyone. And what's happening in verse 22 is, in the universalizing of the psalm, it has the effect of transforming this very individual prayer into one that's suitable for all God's people. And all God's people are invited 
to pray along, alongside the psalmist. Basically, verse 22 gives us permission to apply this psalm to ourselves. To em- empathize with what's wrong in the psalmist's world and to learn from what's right in his response. Like the psalmist, we may have enemies we need deliverance from. And like the psalmist, we certainly have sins we need forgiveness for and guilt we need to reckon with. And like the psalmist, we have trust we need to grow in. And like the psalmist, we have waiting we need to do. This psalm, verse 22, should be ours. So the last thing I want to share with you about this is is just sort of one interesting thing, I think, that uh, ties a lot of it together. One one commentator I read had had what I think was a good suggestion His suggestion was that we should read Psalm 25 as sort of a companion to Psalm 1. So Psalm 1 paints a a beautiful and very simple picture of choosing wisdom, choosing to trust God, and being blessed for our choice. I'll read you the first couple verses. This is Psalm 1 and verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He goes on with this beautiful image of being like a tree planted by streams, well watered, provided for always in this this right way of living. Psalm 1 is a very straightforward psalm. Psalm 1 says, keep your path with God, not with the wicked, and you will be blessed. And it will work out, and life will be great. That's what Psalm 1 says. But Psalm 25 is come back in and say, yes. But sometimes it's more complicated than that. You know, what if I'm trying to walk wisdom's way? I'm trying to do the Psalm 1 thing, but enemies have traps set all along the road of God's path. Psalm 1 didn't mention any of that. How do you handle that? And how do I keep walking God's path when I can't forget about all my past sins and I'm filled with guilt for all the times I've stepped away from God's path? Psalm 1 didn't mention that either. And what if the blessings and the deliverances promised in Psalm 1, that being a well-watered tree who always has what we need, all these blessings from God, what if those blessings promised in Psalm 1 don't all come in immediately? And what if there's a delay from promise to fulfillment? Psalm 1 didn't mention that either. How do I wait patiently and purposefully for God to come through on His promise? Psalm 25 says, walking God's path may not be as simple as Psalm 1 makes it sound. I'll read you what, what, uh, what this commentator who suggested this said. He said, the psalmist, of the, of the Psalm 25 psalmist, the psalmist, troubled from without and within, has stopped for a moment in the way. He knows he cannot turn back, but he scarcely knows how to continue. And so he prays that God would show him the road and make him walk in it. He knows that he does not deserve such guidance and strength, But as one forgiven of sin, he is confident that God will show him the road again. Psalm 1 is a signpost which directs the wise to the choice of the right road. Psalm 25 is a companion for use along the way. I like that. Psalm 1 says, here is the path you should take. And Psalm 25 says, here is a guidebook for navigating that way that you should have taken. Psalm 25 tells us walking with God has never been simple. The world is a chaotic place, and we're going to encounter people that are not trying to walk with God and are going to actively try to get you off the walk with God. 
Sometimes it's not going to be obvious what the right thing to do is, how to handle those enemies. Sometimes the chaos we have in our lives will be our own fault. We will be reckoning with the consequences and the guilt of past sins, and that's going to make it difficult to keep walking with God. What Psalm 25 says in all these circumstances is, get busy waiting, purposeful waiting, waiting where you keep praying and keep obeying and keep hoping and keep growing. Humbly examine yourself and keep on bringing your guilt before God, remembering that God has always had time for God-fearing sinners. And keep preaching to yourself. Keep preaching the character and the will of God as revealed in all the stories and all the laws of God's Word. And so that's Psalm 25. I hope that helps. It's been, uh, I'll, I'll admit to you, sometimes I have these sermons and I write down a bunch of stuff and then I let it sit on my desk for about a month or more. I'm not quite sure what to do with all of it. This was one of them. Um, but I hope this has been a helpful way of, of, of describing it. It's been helpful to me. So maybe there's someone here that realizes your own walk, uh, like the psalmist in Psalm 25, is one that's been characterized by many missteps, veering off of God's path. Maybe you're in a veer right now and you need to get back on God's path. Maybe you're burdened by guilt over a past veer. You need to be reminded of the kind of God that we serve and the forgiveness he offers. Whatever your spiritual need, come forward now as we stand and sing. There's a mountain for you and